Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Well, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, folks. Uh, I had a great visit with my father and family and friends in Scotland, and here's a world first. It is drier in Scotland than it is in Lamore, okay? Yeah, global warming and all that, you know? Uh, but I hope you had a good time with Tim Brown in my absence. And then Frank, uh, last, last week, uh, Frank uh, hit a record, the shortest preach that Frank has ever done in his life in Lamore. And now I have to buy him lunch. So, uh, and now it's me all the way through Christmas, and I can't guarantee you that they're all as short as what Frank did. So uh, he'll be in, in your good books, and I'll be in your bad books. Uh, where, where has the year gone? You know, uh, it was Thanksgiving, and boom. Uh, as Marcus said, it's now Christmas. And if you were a school student in, in Kenya, you would be off until January. They now take their long holidays. And the children of Faraha elementary school and then the high school have just finished their exams and wait for it, okay, wait for it. These exams, particularly for the, ele- the elementary kids, are in class eight to get into high school and every kid has to sit the exam and if they don't pass the exam, they cannot get to high school and the average pass rate in Kenya is just under 50%, about 49% of the kids pass and that means 50 to 51% don't pass. And we just got the results of the kids in class eight of Faraha school 100% pass. It is, it is spectacular. It is spectacular. Uh, one of the photographs on the screens of one of these kids who's about to head out to the high school and, and get that bed in that dormitory is Emmanuel. And he is walking proof that hope still brews in the darkest parts of humanity. Uh, his father uh, his drug-taking father was so debilitating to Emmanuel that he couldn't function at school, excruciating headaches. Uh, his parents are separated. His mother is an alcoholic. His father is a, drug, uh, is, is a drug addict. He lives in the shanty, so not in concrete, just with corrugated iron and mud floor. And during this time, his teachers and the social workers at Faraha kind of interceded on his behalf when his father's drug raging went on. And... Uh, Emmanuel's behavior and health uh, have all improved since he began to attend Faraha. And now there he is. He's clinging on to hope and he's passed his exam and he can now get to high school. And when he gets to high school, he gets a bed, the first bed he will ever have had in his life. And uh, this is real. This is real living by some of these kids who, just because of where they were born, end up in a slum. And you and I have ended up here in California. Uh, and then I just heard that David Oginga, so the next photograph is of David. Uh, David Oginga, uh, Captain America, uh, who was here in October. He's just won a fellowship to study for a year with the Metis Fellowship. And it's a cohort. He still runs his job. Uh, but this is a year-long learning alongside some of the more national and global leaders in the fields of education, leadership, and nonprofit. And we are so thrilled. We are thrilled for Faraha Class 8, who've passed their exams and get to high school. We're waiting for the results of Class 4 from the high school. And we're thrilled that David has been recognized for what he's leading and making happen. And he's got this scholarship and he's off to this fellowship. So, yeah. So, Sunday, December 1, 
2019, we start an unexpected Christmas. And since the fourth century, the church has always taken time to go the journey of Advent. Since the Council of Saragossa in Spain, the church has set aside time to celebrate the amazing truth of the incarnation, that God became flesh, that Christ was born as a child. And so, we're going to focus on the story of the incarnation for the next four Sundays, and we're going to journey to the joy and the celebration of Christmas morning. And uh, may this be a journey that informs you, may it inspire you, and ultimately, may it change this Christmas for you. Uh, and I want to start with a great thought, not my thought, some, somebody else's thought. In my research, I found uh, a writer who quotes from the Yale historian Jaroslav Pelikan. And this is what Jaroslav Pelikan wrote. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of supermagnet to pull out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? And the writer went on to say, it struck me in reading the book he wrote that because we all tend to be so self-absorbed, we often think about Jesus part of my little life or my little church, and we don't stand back and recognize the scope, the sheer awe-inspiring enormity of the impact of Jesus on the world. Wow. Walt Disney's daughter wrote a, biog a biography of her dad back in about, I think it was 2005, I might have that date wrong, but she talks about how when she was a little girl, she did not know, like she didn't really know who her dad was. Like she knew it was dad, but she didn't know who her dad was. And uh, she was six years old, and she was at school, and there were kids in the school, and they said, you know, like Mickey Mouse and the Magic Kingdom and all that stuff, that's your dad. And she went home, and she said to him, Dad, how come you never told me? You're Walt Disney, you know? And it's a little bit like that, okay? For a few minutes today, we're going to try to stand back and look at who this Jesus is and forget about ourselves. This message is not going to be about your life or my life or your guilt or my guilt. And possibly, you'll be overwhelmed. Possibly, you'll be stunned. Possibly, you'll be delighted. And you will see how God has shaped history through Jesus in an awesome way. And it's going to be like a kind of barrage of information that I'm indebted to other pastors and writers more knowledgeable than me who've taught me uh, in their preachings and in their writings, and I'm just going to bring it all together this morning for us uh, as we talk about the first topic in the series, imagine he had never come. And I want to start by naming the obvious. It would be hard to choose a less likely candidate to change the world than Jesus. 
He's not a political figure. He had no connections with Herod, with the Sanhedrin, with Rome. He led no military action. He never wrote a book. He never traveled. His followers were relatively uneducated and ridiculously unimportant people. And the New Testament itself records them as being called unschooled, ordinary people. But it was noted that they had been with Jesus. But 2,000 years later, it is virtually impossible to imagine our world apart from the imprint of Jesus. We're going to try. Uh, do you know why New Year's Day falls when it does on the calendar? Because of Jesus. In Israel, they would start counting on the day a baby was born. Then on the eighth day, the baby would be brought to the temple, and if it was a boy, it would be circumcised. And at that ceremony, the child would be given a name. So December 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, January 1. And January 1 marks the beginning of the new year because that's the day when the name Jesus entered into the world, eight days after He was born under Jewish law. And every January 1st marks this now, whether we know it or not. That's not just a random fact. It was expressing something that was changing in people's idea of history, which is hope. It had never been there before. Now, in our day, we kind of take it for granted that we expect progress. There will be surveys every year, like, do you think life will be better for the next generation than it is for our generation? And nobody, nobody in the ancient world would have done that survey, for that question just did not get asked. Most cultures thought of existence as this kind of endless cycle that just keeps getting repeated. Reality is, for the ancients, an endless repetition of ups and downs and ups and downs. Seasons come, seasons go, empires rise, empires fall. But the followers of Jesus came to believe that history is a story. And this idea began with Israel. Then through Jesus, it spread around the world. God is leading history somewhere. And we will see this worldview as part of what made the, the, the rise of science possible. We'll come to that in a few minutes. But it also meant that people would face the future with hope. The story's going somewhere. God's writing it. It's not meaningless. Imagine if it never come. Now, the secularized version of this is progress. And we all kind of take that as a granted notion that time will, will bring progress. But that's an idea, and it's an idea that the ancients did not share. It came from somewhere. Luke is going to tell us when Jesus was born. So, uh, he writes in the gospel of Luke, Luke's gospel, chapter 2, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And that's a clumsy way to date something. 
Why doesn't he just tell us what year Jesus was born in? And well, the system of Luke's day and region was that the events would be dated by the reign of the emperor. So year one of the reign of Augustus and so on. Over time, the power of every Caesar, their grip on the human imagination faded as power alone always does, while the vision of this man, Jesus, this crucified, unknown carpenter, kept growing. By the 6th century, this is now over 500 years after Jesus now, a Scythian monk living in Rome proposed a new system for reckoning history. His name was Diocinus Exegus, which is Latin for little Dennis. <laughs> Sounds more impressive in Latin, I think. Yeah. He was also known as Diocinus Deliquintus, which is Latin for Dennis the Menace. <laughs> and his suggestion was that the calendar be centered not on the pagan myth of the founding of Rome, but on the incarnation of this carpenter Jesus, who never held an office, who never wrote a book. And the creation of the calendar as we now know it was not just a chronological convenience, it was a theological statement that life in this universe is not an accident, it's not a random cycle, but it's a story with a storyteller. And its critical event is the entrance into the world of a Jewish carpenter named Jesus. And Jesus himself lived and died. No Caesar ever heard of his existence, but Jesus was called by his disciple John, still in the first century, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In the first century, while the movement was tiny, maybe just a few thousand people, such a claim seemed laughable. But imagine if he'd never come. The fact remains, 2,000 years after the birth of this carpenter, every time any human being anywhere on the planet opens a calendar or unfolds a newspaper or boots up a computer, we are reminded every day that Jesus Christ has in fact become the hinge of human history. Caesar, Nero, died in the year of our Lord, 68. A.D. Napoleon, the, the emperor of the world, died in the year of our Lord, 1821. Joseph Stalin, the great dictator, died in the year of our Lord, 1953. Maybe Jesus was not Lord of Lords and King of Kings, but how strange that now every ruler who ever reigned Every nation that rises and falls must be dated in reference to the life of this carpenter from Nazareth. Imagine if he'd never come. Just take him as a man. Forget about the God stuff. Jesus changed how we arrange our time. Without Jesus, there would be no Sunday as we know it. The Sabbath 
The Sabbath was invented by the people of Israel, the only ancient culture to deliberately give up a day of potential economic gain as a statement of trust in their Creator God. By the end of the first century, Christians had begun to meet on another day, not the seventh day anymore. This is written about by a Roman writer named Pliny the Younger. Uh, you want to guess what his father's name was? And Pliny the Younger says on a certain fixed date, not the seventh day, now it was the first day. Why the first day? Because that's resurrection day. Sunday would eventually become the world's day off. The resurrection of Jesus changed the way we arrange our time. The whole idea of what we call holidays that we look forward to began as holy days so that we would remember the life and the impact of this man, Jesus. How we got mechanical clocks. For centuries, there were followers of Jesus in what was known as monastic communities. And they oriented their days around the practice of prayers to this great God and to worship Jesus. They were called the prayers of the hours. And in the 13th century, some Benedict monks created mechanical clocks so they would know when to come together to pray. That, by the way, is why for centuries in communities, the time was told by bells that were in church steeples. That's how people knew what time it was. In the 20th, 21st century, we put clocks on bank signs. So you can kind of tell who a community worships by who you let it tell your time to. Imagine if he'd never come. Jesus shaped how we express compassion. All human beings have the capacity for compassion. But Jesus' movement shaped this in a way that we don't often talk about. In ancient Greece and in ancient Rome, it was generally the beautiful, the noble, the strong who were admired. The rich and the powerful might sometimes give money for public works or a park or a statue or a bath. But they would always carry the rich man's name. It was a way to show the rich man's greatness, have something named after him that he'd given as a benefactor. The weak and the marginal, they weren't valued. There were some wonderful parts of the world, but there were some brutally cruel ones. In the first century, a Roman philosopher named Seneca wrote these words, We drown children at birth when they are weak or abnormal. That's part of the world. It's not a hidden part, except in the strange little community were these people remembering that they followed someone who said, let the little children come to me. They actually began to take in abandoned children, even children who did not belong to them. They had never been any movement like this before in history. We read about Benegas of, of Dijon, the third century, a follower of Jesus, and it says about him, he nursed, supported, and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. He was martyred for his actions. You weren't supposed to do this. Widows by law were actually fined by Rome if they survived their husbands. 
It was considered kind of bad form for a widow to do that, kind of a drag on the economy. Then there was a community of people who remembered that they followed someone who told his friend John when he was dying on a cross, take care of my mom. She's now like your mom. And they started taking in and caring for widows they weren't even related to. The Christian sociologist Rodney Stark says one of the main reasons for the expansion of the church came because of two major epidemics that destroyed a fourth or a third of whole populations. And while people would throw out bodies of the sick into the streets, folks in this strange little community called the church who worshipped a carpenter from Nazareth who had died centuries before. They would bring in sick people they did not know to whom they were not related, and they would care for them at risk of their own health because this Jesus that they followed cared for lepers and the blind and the deaf and the lame. And then, as this movement grew in the fourth century, that what, what was essentially the first hospital for prolonged care for the sick was developed by a follower of Jesus called St. Benedict. Until by the sixth century, monasteries would commonly have hospitals attached to them for the same ministry. And over time, this idea that compassion should be expressed on all who are weak or marginalized began to transform a culture in which that idea had not previously existed until at the Geneva Convention. There were four conventions. The first convention, 1864, an organization was begun to alleviate human suffering. It chose as its symbol a large cross on a flag a red flag. It became known as the Red Cross. In shopping malls today, you will hear people ringing bells. You'll hear it this afternoon if you head to a Target store anywhere in the U.S. It's part of a group called the Salvation Army, founded by a Christian couple named William and Catherine Booth. They took money from the wealthy, and they gave it to the poor to care for them through soup, through soap, and salvation. When you go to a hospital called St. Jude, or the Good Samaritan, or St. Agnes, you speak, know it or not, about the movement of Jesus. This is not to say that there would be no compassion in the world without Christians, and very often, those of us who call ourselves Christians, we fall way, 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 way short in this. But a philosopher named Mark Nelson puts it like this here, if you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely and for practical welfare of the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Imagine if he'd never come. The Jesus movement shaped education as well. 
Notice one difference between an Old Testament verse and the Jesus version of it. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. So this is a central tenet of Judaism. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 says these words, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, and he adds a phrase. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What does it mean to love God with all your mind? It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in what the Jewish people believed in Deuteronomy 6. You know, one day Rome collapsed. And barbarians, Huns, Goths, Visigoths, they destroyed Roman civilization. There were no books as we know it back then. They didn't have printing presses. There were scrolls, and the scrolls easily de decayed quickly and easily. Did you ever ask yourself, why is it that we still have the texts of so many of these great classical works of Roman writers and Greek writers and other thinkers? Well, there's a variety of reasons. But the main one is that about the fourth century, some of the Jesus followers entered into monastic communities, and for many centuries, they were the only communities in Europe for the acquisition, the preserving, and the transmitting of knowledge. Thomas Cahill wrote a popular book, some of you might have read it, worth reading, How the Irish Saved Civilization. They're kind of my cousins, okay? Uh, uh, but for centuries, members of these communities copied down ancient manuscripts, not just the New Testament, but all the writings that they could get their hands on. The single greatest preservers of classical documents were followers of Jesus who were convinced that all truth is God's truth. We love it all and we want to learn it all. Then, because of that, loving God was loving God with all their mind, the church began to build schools to educate young people. How do you think schools came about? Through the church. Followers of Christ who were looking to love Him with all their soul and their minds. And then the church began to build universities. The first one was in Paris around the 12th century. And then in the 13th century, Oxford and Cambridge, two little schools over in England. And then universities in Rome and Naples and Vienna and Heidelberg. They were all begun by followers of Jesus so people could love God with all their minds. Interesting word, they came to be called universities because they reflected the idea that in the beginning, God created all things. Reality is not just this random cyclical accident. God is supremely rational. So that means there is a reality that can be studied to a very large extent, known to the glory of God. So they made not multiversities, not diversities, not random chaos, but a university to study a universe made by a creator. Alfred North Whitehead, one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century, he asked, what is it that made it possible for science to emerge in the human race? And this is his answer, and this to me is so fascinating. He said, it's the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Because if you believe creation was made by a rational God, it will lead to fundamentally different assumptions than if you started in an ancient world with the idea that this is just an accident. 
Then you would think about statements like what the Apostle Paul wrote when the Apostle Paul wrote, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, this is not to say that science could not have arisen otherwise, but the fact is, one writer puts it like, like, like this, science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history in Europe in the civilization they call Christendom. I'll tell you how fundamental this man Jesus was to the rise of education in our own country. Take a look at this statement, okay? This is from a college handbook in the U.S. See if you can guess what college it comes from. Are you ready? Here's the statement. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Any guess what college that comes from? West Hills Community? No, no. Harvard University. I heard somebody over here say it. Harvard. That was basically their student handbook adopted in 1646. Now, the fact it was founded by a Scotsman is irrelevant, but, you know, has Harvard, has Harvard changed a little over the years? Then Yale and William and Mary and Princeton and Brown. 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities founded in America were begun by followers of this uneducated, itinerant, never wrote a book carpenter named Jesus. Imagine if he'd never come. Forget about his divinity, forget about religion, just take him. The alphabet of the Slavic people is called Srililic. It was named for St. Cyril, 9th century, who was a missionary to the Slavs, and he discovered that they had no written alphabet. And so he created one for them. And this is how many, many hundreds of years ago, so they would be able to read this book about Jesus in their own language. Then nation after nation, culture after culture, Christian missionaries went and they found languages that had not been committed to writing. And so in acts of unthinkable magnificence, they devoted their lives to this task of creating written languages for so many countries. And in many cases, the first efforts of the scientific study of a language was done by Christian missionaries. They compiled the first dictionaries. They, 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 they wrote the first grammars. They developed the first alphabets. The first important proper name written in many, many languages was the name Jesus. And the gospel, the gospels are translated today into more than 1,600 languages. No other book is translated into one-fifth that many, if not even one-tenth that many. Imagine if he'd never come. The Jesus movement revolutionized art. Without Jesus, there's no Dante, whose divine comedy was the primary shaper of modern Italy. Without Jesus, there is no Martin Luther, whose German Bible became the primary shaper of the German language. Without Jesus, there's no King James Bible which became the most important source for the shaping of the English language. Without Jesus, there's no Johannes Bach who signed off all of his works to the glory of God. 
Imagine a world with no hallelujah chorus, no Messiah, no Mozart's Requiem, no, no Gregorian chants. In fact, modern music notation was invented in the Middle Ages by monks who wanted to be able to spread music that would glorify and honor this man, Jesus. That's how they developed this way of noting and spreading music. If there was no Jesus, there would be no opera, there would be no love songs, no pop music, no rock music, no hip-hop, no country music. Darn you, Jesus. <laughs> Imagine no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci's Last Supper, no Piata. You can go on for a year like this. There simply has been no transcendent vision of reality, no cosmic story to make sense of this earth that has gripped the artistic imaginations, the battle of life and death, of good and evil, of love and hate, like the vision of this man, Jesus. Imagine if he'd never come. He changed how we think about human rights and worth and dignity. A founding document for this country. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their Creator with certain rights. Where did this idea come from? Because it's not self-evident to lots of people. It wasn't to the Goths, wasn't to the Huns, wasn't to the Nazis. It wasn't part of the caste system. It came from the idea that all human beings have been made by God in His image and are loved by God. And this idea reached an unprecedented height in this expression from the Apostle Paul. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cahill again writes, this is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history, that every human being has equal dignity and worth. Now all individuals and nations, including nations that have thought of themselves as Christian, have fallen and do so fall far short of this. See, the power of Jesus' teaching, His life and His presence, it has a subversive way of refusing to stay submerged and keeps breaking through. That's why reformed movements like abolition were overwhelmingly led by followers of Jesus. Imagine if He'd never come. He uniquely taught love of enemies. Phrases like, turn the other cheek, go with them two miles, love your enemy and bless those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The idea you are to love your enemy is not a natural human idea. Jesus didn't just talk about it. On the cross, He said about those who were executing Him, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He created a community of people who would actually love this way. God, if we could love this way. We're told by ancient writers about these early followers of Jesus, about Christian martyrs. Martyr, by the way, is a biblical word. It's a Jesus word. It's the word for witness in the Bible. And yet, these early followers of this Jesus died for their love of Jesus. 
They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the the flames. These are our brothers and our sisters. This happened. Nero would cover them with pitch and use them as human torches to light gladiator games. This went on and off for three centuries. And the response of the people to this movement was not to dream of revenge, not to start an army, not to create an armed resistance. No, it was to love. The early Christians loved the Romans. They didn't fight them. Imagine if he'd never come. The reality of this love for enemies was so powerful, for example, that we read about a pagan military commander who said he could not execute any more Christians. He himself was executed for that decision. So powerful was this love of Jesus. Imagine if he'd never come. He inspired a writer named Tolstoy who wrote a book called Resurrection that was banned in Russia, but that inspired a British-trained lawyer to, to start a Tolstoyan community in South Africa. And the last full letter Tolstoy ever wrote to a non-relative was to this lawyer to praise the self-sacrificing, enemy-loving love of Jesus that this young lawyer had. That lawyer's name was Mahatma Gandhi. He eventually went back to India. He didn't become a Christian because he was thrown out of a church in South Africa because he wasn't white. But there's no way to understand the movement that Gandhi fostered apart from the Sermon on the Mount and the suffering love of the Jesus he believed in. Imagine if he'd never come. The most famous speech of the 20th century was given by a preacher by the name of Martin Luther King. I have a dream. I'll tell you something cool about this speech. Taylor Branch, American historian, writes about this. Martin Luther King is speaking from a prepared text on this date. And he throws in at one point a quote from the prophet Amos, in the Old Testament of the Scriptures, from Amos, we will not be satisfied till justice rolls like the waters. We will not be satisfied till righteousness rolls like a mighty stream. The crowd could not keep quiet. They started to applaud. They started to yell back to Martin Luther King, tell it, tell it, amen, amen, preach it, preach it, like a church crowd. Well, not like this church crowd, but like a a normal church crowd, okay? The kind of crowd that answers you back. And Martin Luther King could not go back to his prepared text. And history reports that when he gets to that quote from Amos, the singer Mahalia Jackson, who had just performed before King began his speech, was standing behind him. And she pipes up like she's in the choir. Tell them about the dream, Martin. That was a topic she'd heard him speak about in Detroit. And King stops speaking from his prepared script, and he starts singing to a nation as a prophet would do. I have a dream. 
And he goes from Amos to Isaiah that one day all children of God will be judged no longer by the color of their skins, but the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be brought down. The glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I have a dream. That's the dream of Shalom. It's a Jesus dream. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not a secular speech. This is not a secular speech that can, because a secular speech cannot move a human heart. This is Jesus at work. Imagine if he'd never come. And as we finish, let me quote someone wiser. He is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher who ever lived. He is the greatest mind that ever thought. He sparked the greatest movement that has ever spread. He offered the greatest gift that has ever been given. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone grows more present with each passing year. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. Thank God He came. Thank God He came. You don't need to imagine He never came. He came. And He's changed the world, and He's changed my world. And I pray in the journey towards Christmas that you let Him in and He changes your world, because that's what He's about. He's the Savior, the changer, the transformer, the redeemer of the world. Let's stand for closing prayer. And we stand to give all glory and honor to the one who came and the one who has left His indelible mark upon all of human history, and not just the history of the world right back to the first century, but the history of each of our worlds. He's there. He's present. And He comes to bring life and hope. He comes in love. He comes with joy and thanksgiving. He comes with new life and new mercy every day, every week, every moment, every action. And yet, God, there are people who are living imagining that He never left. How do they survive? And there are those of us, God, who know Him, and we don't share Him. Why not? Come, God. And in this journey through Advent, may our hearts be instilled with fresh hope, new life, and new hope as we grasp the wonder of who this Jesus is and what He's done in our world, both in the past and in the life to come. Come, we pray.
and we marvel and worship Him as we start this Advent. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a great week, folks. We'll see you next week for a story about Mary.